This is part 16 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider. Part 16. The Deal. The three Italian men asked for Leanne, and the receptionist called Leanne. And Leanne disabled the electromagnetic deadbolt. I'm Leanne, she said as they appeared at the top of the stairs. Buongiorno, they said, each offering a courteous hand. Leanne shook all three. We would like to buy a Sotomarino, they told her. And she looked blankly at them until one of them snapped his fingers and clarified, Ah, submarine. (laughs) Leanne laughed. We don't sell submarines, she said. We don't actually sell any boats. We have a magazine about boats, which you could buy if you want. But if you want boats, you'll have to go to a boatyard. I'm not sure where to go if you want a submarine. The Italian men looked at one another. Prego, they asked her. Don't you have confidentials listings? It was true, they did have confidential ads, usually placed by elderly people with mounting debts and no children to show them how to sell things on the computer. Tinnies, outboards, miscellaneous accessories like boys and cushions and onboard computers, every now and then a yacht. They had never sold a submarine. But the afternoon was long and slow and dark now that the windows had been welded over with steel bars. And Leanne had nothing better to do than accommodate the strange Italian men. So she sat down at her computer and typed submarine into the database. The hourglass cursor flipped once, then twice, and the database found item one of one, an ad listing that had been submitted that morning and not yet posted. The ad read, For sale, midget submarine, $300,000, not negotiable, collect from Mungabarina Boat Ramp, Albury. She looked up in a state of giddy disbelief. What were the odds, she wondered. Phenomenally high must be the answer. Every now and then some tyre-kicking pensioner would see the boat logo on the sign outside and come meandering into the office in search of a conversation about this watercraft or that. But sometimes, and not often, it must be said, they'd ask Leanne if she had anything for sale. But a submarine, and today, out of the blue, for the submarine to be advertised, for it to be for sale right here in Albury, at this moment in the town's history. Though then again, maybe the timing explained a lot. Leanne pursed her lips as she thought about the crime wave outside. And for an interested party to just walk in off the street and ask to buy one. You'll never guess, she told the three strange Italian men. She explained what had happened and rocked back on her heels to take in their reaction. She was disappointed. They looked at one another and exchanged a slight nod, then politely asked Leanne how they might contact the owner of the submarine. "Uh, There's a phone number, she said. 
She wrote it on a post-it note and handed it to one of the men who folded it and tucked it into the breast pocket of his suit. Grazie, he said. They turned towards the door. Wait, Leanne said. They turned back. Why do you need a submarine? She asked. The Italians shared a glance, then one of them told her, It is a private affair of business. Goodbye. They turned again. I could become an investor, she told them. I'm interested in business. I don't think so, the Italian said, turning once more, with a measure of impatience this time. Our business is very delicate. We do not allow just anyone to become involved in it, and you could not afford to be a part of it. It is very expensive to be in business with us. I could help, Leanne said. I could make sure that no one ever sees that confidential ad about the submarine. I could bury it. And I have some savings, she continued, as the three Italians turned back towards her. How expensive are we talking? There was a long pause. Then one of the Italians said, We could not accept less than half of a million dollars. Leanne fell silent. It was a lot of money. Please, the talkative one said, do not try to blackmail us. You will not tell anybody about our Soto Marino. It is very serious. Business must be conducted with seriousness. His eyes glittered as he said the words. His voice was as soft and dull as river sand. He smiled at Leanne, and as it cracked across his face, the other two smiled also. Leanne felt a chill. She swallowed hard. Yeah, yeah, she agreed. Yeah, of course. She shivered as the pieces of the puzzle snapped suddenly into place. Italian. Businessmen. Secretive. In fact, the Italian men were not mafioso. They were two chefs and a landscaper from Florence whose interest in diving had led in time to a familiarity with boats and then submersibles. The Australian government's bounty on the secrets of the blob had spread quickly and enthusiastically through diving circles, and when previous dive teams had failed and the cash prize escalated further, they appealed to a wealthy Florentine businesswoman for her investment. $1.5 million for a submarine is excessive, she told them. I will telephone my half-brother Dimitri. The Pacific is his playground. $300,000, no more. And you will require expense funds. They boarded a flight from Peritola Airport in Florence with 400,000 Australian dollars in cash and an untraceable compact plastic crossbow that was lethal and highly accurate up to 500 metres. The Italians smiled at Leanne again. Please, said one of them, a tall man with sandy hair and a crooked smile. If you would like to join us, we ask for only $500,000. Very simple. We have a telephone. You may send us a message. The Italians didn't need the money to complete their deal, of course. They just appreciated the simplicity of a small-town mark, the elegant grift of separating a person from large amounts of liquid cash with nothing more than an evocatively described El Dorado waiting just downriver. Their background was murky, but their intel regarding submarines for sale in regional boating classifieds was clear. They farewelled Leanne and returned to the cluster of campers they'd circled in a reserve on the outskirts of town, and they filled a satchel with 300,000 Australian dollars. 
As the sun sagged low and heavy in the late afternoon, they pulled their rented four-wheel drive into the parking area near Munga Barina boat ramp and waited. The ramp lay down a circuitous dirt road that forked unceremoniously off Doctors Point Road, a little used tributary ordinarily frequented by bushwalkers and picnickers. The Italians had to ease their vehicle down the path to the clearing. Further upstream, the Murray River entered Lake Hume and emerged the other side a vast rushing torrent. But at Munga Barina boat ramp, the surface of the river was brown and smooth and only 10 or 15 metres across. They waited patiently for 20 minutes and were rewarded eventually by a churn that travelled slowly up the centre of the river. A drone crept into the late afternoon air. The water began to boil and pulse and the Italians watched impassively as it bubbled and spilled away from the one and a half metre dome that pushed up to the surface. A hatch popped and a rat-faced man emerged. He had a thick black hairline that scooped low over his forehead, leaving a no-man's land of only a few centimetres before his heavy brows emerged to cast rude shadows over a thin nose and close-together eyes. His face was red and his hair slicked down with sweat. He stooped and drew from within the submarine a plank which, with great exertion, he managed to heft one end of onto the top of the cement boat ramp. The other he balanced on the edge of the submarine's hatch. He held the sides of the hatch to steady himself and hunched over as he climbed up the ladder, moving only his feet, and placed them over the edge onto the plank. Now he was nearly horizontal. He was still holding onto the sides of the hatch. His grunts floated across the water to the Italians, who remained expressionless. Gradually, the rat-faced man scooted his feet far enough down the plank that he could manoeuvre first one hand, then the other, off the hatch edge and onto the plank by his waist. With a pained expression on his face, he sat up. He looked left and right at the swirling brown water around him and sighed. He breathed deeply a moment and stood up slowly and carefully. Gingerly, he stepped foot over foot until at last he was on dry land. He scurried over to the Italians and offered a hand to shake. They stared at him until he put it away. You're here for my submarine, he suggested. See, si, one of the Italians said. Prego. The Italian held out the satchel filled with money. Three hundred thousand dollars for your submarine. The rat-faced man grabbed the satchel. He scrabbled at the zipper and thumbed desperately at the notes inside. Wait until I've counted it, he pleaded. There's so much, but it won't take too long, I promise. He squinted pessimistically. No, the Italians told him. You have to trust that we have given you the right amount of money. We have made a deal. The rat-faced man grunted and perspired and muttered, $950, $1,000, $1,050, under his breath. The Italians made a guttural throat sound towards him and swore in Italian. Jackal, one spat. You count alone. He peeled off towards the submarine and bounded nimbly along the gangplank. 
In a moment, he had disappeared down the hatch, stowed the plank, and closed the watertight door with a clank. The drone of the engines resumed. The other two Italians climbed back into their four-wheel drive. As they turned the ignition, the rat-faced man looked up from his feverish counting. Oh, I'm riding back into town, please! He shouted desperately. The four-wheel drive roared back up the road. The rat-faced man stuffed the money back into the bag and flailed as he dashed back up the hill. It was beginning to rain. He fumbled in his pockets and pulled out a thick silver flip phone. With the clouds gathering overhead, it was hard to read the phone's tiny LCD screen. He thumbed around frantically, trying to make his way to the list of contacts and dial a number, but fat drops of water kept spattering the screen and keypad. He staggered towards a line of trees, polishing the screen furiously with a sleeve, and when it didn't work, he hunched over double to try and shield it from the rain. But the rain was getting harder. Now it was driving in sideways. He fumbled with the rubbery buttons and the screen missed it up. He bared his little rat teeth and wobbled backwards off the gravel verge and into the long yellowing grass by the side of the road. He picked his way grimly to the tree line where the water filtering down came more sporadically and shook the screen to try to dislodge the condensation inside. He punched a number in and dialed. There was silence, then the beep 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 that meant no coverage. Fuck, he swore. Fuck, and held the phone up in the air and dialed again. Nothing. He tucked the phone inside his underwear and turned up the road that led slowly uphill and towards town. It was three kilometres back up to the Riverina Highway, and as the sheeting rain sent rivulets of muddy water up over the toes of his shoes, his pace slowed to a sodden trudge. At the intersection of the highway, he reached into his groin and removed the phone. He pulled the flap of his windcheater out like a wing and flipped it open again, but this time the screen stayed dark. With mounting panic, he held down the power button. Nothing, 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 and nothing. Behind him on the road came the muffled revving of a motorcycle engine, the sound strangely filtered by rainfall, but the rat-faced man's focus crowded in on the phone and the rubber button. His thumb bored in on it in longer and longer intervals until a crack appeared in the silver plastic honeycomb behind the buttons and he looked up at the sky in despair, slightly too late to dodge as a pair of thin teenagers with huge baggy leather jackets raced past and the second drove a wooden hockey stick into his ribs. They screeched with glee as they disappeared into the distance while the rat-faced man crumpled, winded and the satchel strap slid from his shoulder. Back onto the verge, he rolled and slid hard into the ditch. He fell awkwardly and the base of his neck hit an outcrop of cement storm water pipe and the vertebrae cracked. His body pitched forward at a right angle to his head and his chest spasmed for breath for a minute and became still for good. The rain fell gently on the satchel, a small dark heap at the side of the road. But let's go back a little. Back to Albury, just after Peter has been given a new job on the TV. 
Peter and Jackie climbed into Leanne's station wagon and she put it into gear and began to crawl through the town, where people were already beginning to rebuild their homes and lives after the crime wave had been brought to such a sensational end. On the streets around them, hard-working border citizens re-erected road signs and speed cameras and bollards, sawed fallen trees and placed traffic cones around hazardous objects. Leanne slowed down to 20 kilometres per hour and the three of them stared respectfully at the municipal cooperation. They drove past glaziers replacing shop windows, plumbers repairing fire hydrants, police officers unhooking the mutilated remains of murdered dogs and cats from power poles. They drew up at a stoplight and saw a congregation of boys gathered in the adjacent park. They were doing nothing to clean or fix or to restore order in some other way. It raised Peter's hackles. Hey! He called out the window. They ignored him. He got out of the car and walked over to them. The boys were husky and wore dark expressions, thick with musty smells and private knowledge. They were gathered around a stone table playing a complicated card game. They wore loose black clothing and smoked horrible cigarettes and tried to make themselves older. The oldest was only 23, but none looked a day under 60. Occasionally they croaked at each other in aggravated voices about their card game. They shared a single thermos of bitter black coffee, which they poured into tiny porcelain cups at intervals and swallowed with a grimace. They were completely absorbed in their game and didn't look up as Peter approached. Peter cleared his throat. Aside from a glare from one of the husky boys, there was no reaction. Peter looked at the cards they were holding. They were completely normal in colour and number and suit, but the game they played was unfamiliar. Each of them held between 3 and 15 cards, and as they went around the circle, they took turns placing cards on the table face up in front of them. Peter couldn't detect the pattern. The Queen of Hearts followed the Three of Clubs, then the Nine of Diamonds, then the Five of Diamonds, then the King of Spades. It continued like this for a while. Suddenly, one of them reached into the centre of the table where the Ten of Clubs sat isolated in an ashtray and grabbed it with an expression of ferocious delight. The rest threw down their cards with moans of disgust and patted the winner on the back. Devon Deal, one of them croaked. They all began to jabber. Yes, Gavin Deal. Gavin picked up the cards and dealt them out without shuffling. When they all had six cards, he placed a new card in the ashtray. Peter's curiosity was intense. He tapped Gavin on the shoulder. Excuse me, he asked. What are you playing? The husky boys all turned to stare at Peter. Two-hand triage, one of them growled. The rest uttered guttural throat sounds in agreement. Peter stared spitefully back at Jackie and Leanne waiting in the car for him to return. Mind if I join you? He asked, and two of the husky boys shuffled over on their stone bench to let him in. The rules to two-hand triage were simple. Play your cards until you felt the time was right to take the card in the ashtray. If you wanted to take more cards from the deck, you simply took them. There was no upper or lower limit to how many cards you could hold. Anyone could take the ashtray card at any time. The game depended on an honour system whereby players trusted each other not to take the card in the ashtray until it was right and appropriate to do so. 
When the ashtray card was taken, the other players congratulated the winner and remarked on their strategic play. It was a perfect game. Peter was intoxicated by the simplicity and elegance of two-hand triage. He played his cards with giddy enthusiasm. When he only had one card left, he drew eight more cards to add to his hand just to see what would happen. The only reaction was a couple of brief nods from the Husky boys. He swelled with satisfaction and played two cards on his next turn, then three more, and then he snatched the centre card. The table erupted with gruff mumbling. One of the Husky boys threw his hand down on the table. It was pure nonsense, a two, an eight, a king, but the others peered at it and muttered condolences. Those nearest Peter clapped him on the back in congratulation. They barked, well played, and ingenious. He gathered the cards up and dealt. Lovely here in Albury, he observed. There was no response. Affection from the locals would be important if he was to establish himself in Albury. He tried again. Beautiful at this time of year, Albury. He bellowed loud enough that anyone passing through the park could hear. One of the husky boys grunted and Peter beamed with satisfaction at the dialogue. As play continued, one or another of the boys would offer a remark of a personal nature. Ralph is still holding his wooden sphere. He's turning it in his rough hand. Went to Simon's lake house on Friday. The sound of djembe drums from the opposite shore ruined it again. I still ache. I do. I do. The conversation was mystifying to Peter. He supposed the remarks had meaning to the husky boys. Context. That kind of thing. And he tried to fill in the blanks with observations about djembe drums and wooden spheres. There was never any response. The stony indifference of the husky boys unnerved him. More than anything, he wanted other people to like him. If it wasn't possible for everyone to like him, and he accepted that at times it may not be, then he at least wanted to see the numbers. He wished he could see ratings from the boys. In the hard and unambiguous percentages of the nightly TV ratings was always comfort. Even when they showed a lost point here or there, he could still gaze with pleasure at the 900,000 or 1 million labelled blandly next to his name and be comforted that he was respected and admired in staggering numbers. Checking the ratings was an unskippable part of his daily routine. Every morning when he arrived at Five News, he'd ring the bell for a steaming hot cappuccino, sling his feet up on the desk and open the email containing the ratings for the night before. He'd spoon the froth off the top and bubble with fury when he saw Strasbourg at number one, or giggle with satisfaction when it was his own name in the top spot. When it was Strasbourg, he'd dash off an email to Judith Senyol saying something like, could we be doing more? Or disappointing. When it was him, he'd still write to Judith, but add in the chairman and a long list of senior executives. The email might read, Looks like my idea of maintaining eye contact with the camera during the credit roll is paying off. Or, a uniquely satisfying sensation to know viewers are warming to my new wardrobe. He craved the ratings. If he ever arrived at work early, for a meeting, or if the train ran ahead of schedule, he'd pace around his office looking blankly at pieces of paper in the window until the crucial email landed in his inbox. He missed them most of all now. There was so much to be uncertain about, not just the unreadable expressions of his current associates, but his performance in the trials he'd endured over the past few days. His opinion was that he'd shown real pizzazz and wherewithal, 
but how comforting it would be to see that familiar grid with a number one next to his name. They played cards again, then again, and again. By the time they had finished, night had fallen, and Jackie and Leanne had left. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. Please rate and review this podcast if you can. Um, and if you haven't already, check out my substack, infinitegossip.substack.com. Last week, I put up a brand new short story about a man who discovers that a newly discovered jellyfish is an exact replica of his own head. If you know anyone who's into recurring characters, make sure you tell them about this podcast because next week in part 17, we'll see the return of a character we haven't seen since part 11. So it's a great time to check her out. Uh, For this one, you have to imagine Kerr is short for recur. So if you could just do that.